0: julian the emperor also known as julian the apostate in the course of oration number six to the uneducated cynics where he is telling them that they've essentially got cynic philosophy wrong that they are sticking to a mistaken understanding and practice of it and missing the the original meaning of it the essence of it is going to claim that not only is cynicism a philosophy and a legitimate philosophy, in a certain sense, it is all philosophy. All philosophy, if it's done right, is really connected to cynicism. It is a universal philosophy or a universal mode of philosophizing. And that's kind of a big claim. So we're gonna look at how he tries to justify this. And it really has to do with his conception of cynicism. The place to, to start is with this metaphor that he's taking from Plato's symposium where Alcibiades talks about Socrates, who is kind of an ugly guy, as being like those images of Selenus that sit in the shops of the statuaries with craftsmen, make with pipes or flutes in their hands he's a satyr when you open them up inside you see golden statues of the gods right so you got this ugly outside you open up the the inside and you find beautiful statues of whatever is best in the universe and he's saying that cynicism is like that the things that we attribute to say Diogenes in particular who's a rather earthy character to say the least and who he talks about in here is doing this experiment of eating raw octopus and and other things and have, you know, raw meat. That's just the outer shell. And what we really want is the core. And so in order to discover what this is, we want to try to figure out what is the initial impetus where is cynicism coming from originally and you know the traditional story is that it's coming from Antisthenes or Diogenes there's a little bit of difference about both of them Diogenes is coming after he's actually not a resident of Athens he's coming to Athens from Sinope where either he or his father debased the currency and you know he was exiled Antisthenes was a student of Socrates. There's stories that Diogenes wanted to study with Antisthenes and Antisthenes drove him away, but Diogenes clung to him. So, you know, we don't really know the complete historical background of this. There's lots of stories circulating around. And notice what Julian does in relation to this. He says, the founder of the philosophy to whom we're to attribute it is not easy to discover, even though some think the title belongs to Antisthenes and Diogenes. So he's giving them both as the founder, right? But then he brings up this guy, Onomaus, who he doesn't actually agree with in many respects, but he says, Oynamaus got this right, at least, uh, <clears throat> in portraying what cynicism was. The cynic philosophy is neither Antisthenism nor diogenism. So it's not just following a master. And we could contrast this, for example, to Platonism of certain sorts, although many of Plato's successors deviated from him considerably. Or we could talk about Epicureanism, where he is the master, right? Who everybody is following. And so this is quite important. He says, it's not just about taking a path that either Antisthenes or Diogenes gave us and following it religiously, following it blindly, following it dogmatically. And he says, you know, there's another figure, and this really does tie in with historical cynicism, who we could go back to as well, this... No longer historical but mythical figure of Heracles or Hercules, as we, we typically say in English from from the Latin right and Heracles was viewed as sort of the prototypical cynic. If you think about the labors that he 's doing, he undertakes these they 're all for the benefit of somebody at least, not just himself, and he ends up becoming you know a god in the process. He also doesn't need an awful lot in order to be doing well. So, you know, he says Heracles bequeathed to humankind the noblest example of this mode of life. And then Julian says, you know, I want to speak with due reverence of the gods and those who've attained their functions. I believe even before Hercules, Not only among the Greeks, but even among the barbarians as well, there were people who practiced this philosophy. And here's where he says this seems in some ways to be a universal philosophy, to be the most natural and to demand no special study whatsoever. How would that be the case? Well, through thinking about things as human beings, using our faculty of reason, we can figure out some of the things that we ought to do. And you could say, well, you're right. We can. Why do so few people actually do it then? Well, they use your the reason for other things instead. But he says it's simply enough to choose the honorable by desiring virtue, desiring moral goodness, being a good person and avoiding evil. You don't have to read countless books. You can actually, he says, hearken to the Pythian god when he enjoins these two precepts, know thyself and falsify the common currency. Falsifying the currency is very important for the cynics. we just talked about Diogenes as an example of that. And this leads him to another thing. He says, well, okay, while we're talking about the Pythian oracle and the god at Delphi, that's the founder of this philosophy. The cause of all the blessings the Greeks enjoy, the universal leader, lawgiver, king of Hellas, the god of Delphi. Who is that? That is Apollo. So Apollo is giving the cynic philosophy as a universal philosophy to humankind through the precepts that are coming from from that. So he says then, all right, we've discovered the founder of this philosophy. We've also discovered its leading men. And who are these leading men? Antisthenes is among them. Diogenes is among them. He also brings up Crates, who was a student of Diogenes. Also one of the rare married cynics, married to Hipparchia, who is a sort of exemplar of a female cynic. Crates helps her brother out. And Hipparchia says, I want to marry that guy. I don't want any of these suitors. I want to marry that guy there and karate says it's a terrible life for you that that you'd be leading and she says nope i want to be with you buddy and they are so leading men and women we can talk about and he says the aim and end of their lives was to know themselves to despise vain opinions to lay hold of truth at their whole understanding and here's where then he says something really interesting so it's not just the cynics It's also other philosophers from other schools insofar as they share these common traits or goals or activities with the cynics. He brings up Pythagoras, who is himself the founder of a sect. We have, you know, bits and pieces of the Pythagorean philosophy. He actually just brought up Iamblichus in this, who we learned some of it from. Plato, obviously, Socrates, very important. The Cynics did frame themselves as Socratic philosophers. Then he talks about Aristotle and the Peripatetics as well. and. Zeno, the founder of the Stoic school, who studied with members of the Cynic school, Crates, members of the Platonic Academy, and even the Megarian school, which was another minor Socratic school. So he says that all of these were doing similar things. They all wished to know themselves, not to follow vain opinion, but to track down truth among all things that are. And he says, it's become evident, Plato was not pursuing one end, and Diogenes another, but the end was the same. And this is kind of interesting to find out because we have all these stories about Diogenes giving Plato a hard time, right? So how is Julian getting this idea that really Diogenes and Plato more or less the same path? Plato's talking more, Diogenes is acting more. This is kind of an interesting thing to say. Plato chose to achieve his end through words, whereas for Diogenes, deeds sufficed. Does the latter, on that account, deserve to be criticized by you? And he says, No, Diogenes is actually doing quite well. The cynics have in common with all of these people the goal of developing self-knowledge to bring the body into subjection to the soul and the higher parts of the soul to have them rule over the lower parts and thereby to enjoy happiness. A little bit later on, he talks about the end and aim of the cynic philosophy, as indeed of every philosophy, he tells us, is happiness. Now, this means that all philosophy is, in a certain sense, practical. It's not merely theoretical. This actually does jibe with what we can say about Plato and about Aristotle. They did value theoretical knowledge. They value theoretical knowledge because they think that the contemplative life is indeed a very good life, perhaps the best life. And so how do we attain happiness for the cynics? Well, what Julian tells us is that it consists in living in according to nature and not according to the opinions of the multitude. So we have this this disjunction there, nature, the natural way, not what the crowd, the many think, which is pretty platonic or rather pretty Socratic, right? What we're getting through Plato and notice that formula living in accordance with nature. What does that sound like? That sounds very much like the Stoics, right? and so we can say, is this really Stoicism or Cynicism that we're talking about, or perhaps a Stoicized Cynicism and a Platonized Cynicism? Well, that that may be the case. But this is indeed what Julian thinks the cynics ought to be keeping in mind as they're going around doing their street philosophy that consists of begging and doing, you know, offending people in public and all that sort of stuff. So that they're not doing it in a way that deviates from the true core of cynic philosophy as a universal philosophy. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible.